Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com culture. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. This is the Slate Culture Gabfest live from Broadway edition. It's Wednesday, November 18th, and if my voice sounds a little bit ragged and hoarse, that is because last night I was performing at Slate's Superfest, the one we've been talking about for months on this and other Slate and Panoply shows, live on Broadway at Town Hall. And today, instead of a normal Culture Gabfest episode, we are presenting most of what happened on stage last night. So you'll hear segments from the Political Gab Fest, from us, from Hang Up and Listen, an interview with the stars of Hamilton, and a special bonus round that I won't spoil here. Also, our Slate Plus listeners who had early access to last night's event will get to listen to a special podcast family feud, an entirely goofy and totally delightful segment with which we opened our show last night. So now you'll hear from Dan Coyce at Town Hall kicking off our show. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Slate Superfest on Broadway! It's Monday, November 16th, and we are so excited to be here at beautiful Town Hall in New York City. So many incredible performers have appeared on this stage. Marian Anderson, Whitney Houston, Dizzy and Bird, Mitch and Mickey, and now to that list, add the Culture Gap Fest, Hang Up and Listen, and the Politics Gap Fest. Tonight, we are also being joined by Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr themselves, the incredible David Diggs and Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton. All right, here's our order tonight. We're going to start with the Politics Gap Fest discussing this week's Democratic presidential debate in Iowa and its extremely handsome moderator. Then the Culture Gap Fest will talk about Aziz Ansari's new Netflix show, Master of None, and other great pop culture portrayals of the fraught relationship between parents and their adult children. 
Then, hang up and listen, we'll dig into the incredible unfolding Russian Olympic doping scandal. In our fourth segment, Dana and John will return to the stage to be joined by Leslie Odom Jr. and David Diggs to talk about Hamilton on Broadway. And then, for our big 11 o'clock number, it won't be 11 o'clock, I promise. We've got a round-robin lightning round of debates featuring all nine podcasters. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to be in the room where it happens? All right. Let's begin. You may have seen these podcasters on such previous programs as Face the Nation, the New York Times Magazine, and the National Zoo's 10 Most Wanted list. Please welcome John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and David Plotz, the Politics Gab Fest! Such a blunder, sometimes it makes me wonder why I even bring the thunder. So we're going to start with an immediate shift. You may want to re-record your intro, Dan. Because we're not, we're not talking about the Democratic debate. Do you well, want to? A little bit. We're not not talking. About it's too late, man. It's already on tape. Uh, we'll do it live. Okay. Um, we 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 ought to talk about the Democratic debate because let's just pause and quell for a minute about John. It is who did an amazing job with it. And if he will be doing a, uh, a Republican debate in, on Valentine's Day, so set your date clock for that. And then if there is any justice in the world in October, he'll be doing a general election debate, I think. <laughs> From my mouth to God's ears. Okay. We think, we think. John's blushing, guys. <clears throat> Let's move on. <laughs> All right. So we, we, we're, we're going to talk about a very serious subject today, I think. Um, you know, the attacks in Paris uh, were a target on the pleasure centers of the world. It was more than Mumbai, more than Boston Marathon, more than Madrid, more than London. I think these attacks uh, have gripped the world and enraged uh, Americans and Europeans, certainly more than anything since 9-11. So uh, we're going to talk, we're going to try to merge our expertises here. So we're going to try to talk about the effect the, these attacks in the context of America, the American presidency and American presidential election um, and what they will mean for the election. So, John, let's just start with you, which is that at the debate, this, you, you opened this Democratic debate by having the candidates talk about it, um, but it in no sense dominated the debate because the debate was, in, it was about economics. Why, why was it, I think, it, it, seemed, it felt to me watching it that it was really relatively easy for the candidates to move off of it, that they didn't want to linger on it, they didn't circle back to it. Why is this attack, which is, I think, hitting people so deeply emotionally, um, did it not grip them as politicians? Well, I think it gripped them all, um, and they certainly f f felt the emotion of it. I think that to the extent that, they, that everybody who's not named Hillary Clinton wants to um, talk about the differences and what distinguishes them from Hillary Clinton, it's harder on foreign policy. I mean, they tried, and Bernie Sanders tried to link her vote on the, the uh, invasion into Iraq directly to the growth of ISIS. And then Martin O'Malley kept saying that um, it was the lack of vision. It was a little bit more oblique, but it was the lack of vision from the State Department and the administration that led to this. But that isn't their comfort 
zone. Um, Bernie Sanders was much more powerful and animated when drawing contrast with her on Wall Street. So was Martin O'Malley on both the minimum wage and Wall Street. So I think they felt tentative in that opening. I think that there is some complexity in both uh, the Obama administration handling of ISIS. Uh, the president has admitted he missed it. Um, she has admitted that she missed the growth of ISIS. And the president had, in an interview just the day before these attacks, said that the United States had both geographically limited ISIS's growth and also limited its growth in strength. And that the geographical... Um, Zero out of two ain't bad. So that so that's not good. And, and obviously also famously he referred to it as the JV in an interview with David Remnick. In a poll we did right before the debate, 72% of the country thinks that the fight against ISIS is going poorly. 31% think he's handling that issue well. So this was a bad, uh, this was not a good issue for Hillary Clinton because, and you, as you heard from her answers, she doesn't have a great answer. Her best answer is, I was right about Syria and the president didn't listen to me, which is not something she wants to so, say too much. Emily, uh, the Republican candidates, as they are thinking about their themes for the general election, so far it's just like, we're really angry and Obama is terrible and Hillary Clinton is more Obama and it's, there's just a lot of America needs to be back, immigration. And there hasn't been a clarifying theme that you felt that they could run in a general election on. Is, do you think that this is going to become that theme? Is ISIS, is the war on terror, as it was in 2004, uh, going to uh, grab the Republican electorate and then maybe the whole country enough that that becomes the theme for the election? I mean, it sure beats going after Obamacare for the 85th time. It feels new. And yet, of course, it's also old because it brings up their vulnerability uh, when President Bush was in office and their handling of the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. However, these are new candidates, and they're not linked to Bush the way Hillary is linked to right. Obama. So, yes, I think this is a good issue for them. And it has to do with safety and people's sense of this... Um, overwhelming global insecurity and threat. And that's generally a good issue for Republicans. So, so, wait, John, just to frame it, so, so John McCain, referring back to Donald Trump, said that, uh, I think when you look at the dimensions of this tragedy, most Republicans' voters will not be satisfied with will bomb the shit out of them. Talking about, do you think... I'm not that, sure that, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, John McCain... Well, I mean, it's a human reaction. It's, it's the reaction the French had and are currently in the middle of doing. So the French, I don't know how many what are, we're up to now, but as of this morning, they had bombed 20 targets in Raqqa in Syria, which is the, um, the headquarters of ISIS. And so the question is, if they were bombing 20 today, why wasn't somebody bombing 20, those 20 the day before? And the question is whether the US military ha has a lot of sites picked out, um, but the problem is that ISIS is smart when they have their their top leaders are surrounded by civilians. And so the military um, people who are watching the bad guys in ISIS walk around because they can do that, can't take the shot because there's, a, there's basically a zero tolerance policy for attacks if you know that there's gonna be civilian casualties. The question is whether the, what the French level of tolerance is on that and or, and or whether this, these bombings are sort of um, Cross theater. Cross line. Well, do they cross that line, or are they just like, we're just going to show that we're retaliating? How effective are they? That's an interesting question. But to your original one in the, in the political sense, first of all, just let's talk about why this has the people in the intelligence community so spooked. So ISIS took down so, the first... So to speak. So, so the ISIS took down the first plane since Lockerbie. That's a big deal. And now they have um, 
moved, the French, since the Charlie Hebdo attacks, French intelligence has been on high alert. And so here you had a highly sophisticated in six different locations, long planned, planned in, in, in Iraq and Syria, and carried out over six different locations. That's incredible, an incredible level of planning and detail that they didn't necessarily know that ISIS had. The notion that ISIS was just trying to build a caliphate, they've obviously now expanded, and they have what the intelligence communities call attack capability. What's frightening to the intelligence people is that the attack capability can manifest itself now in the Sinai, in France, and in possibly other places where ISIS has um, operatives, which would include in the United States. So what this is, is, is an attack that was horrific in its uh, car being carried out in France, but it also suggests potential that goes way beyond what they thought they could do. And that's what has everybody so freaked out. Now to your, finally to your point about politics. You could argue one, th you could argue two ways. One, this calls for somebody who understands the nuances of the relationship between Syria and Iraq um, and Saudi Arabia and Europe and all of, and the migrants and, you know, really needs to understand the contours of the world. Um, and then experience. you could also, well, yes, ex experience or understanding because Marco Rubio has understanding and not much experience. I mean, in an executive capacity, I mean. Um, so that's one route. The other route is the Donald Trump route. Um, and we've seen certainly in the past, um, uh, Bill Clinton has a, a phrase that strong and wrong is better than, I can't remember what the alternative is, but, um, <laughs> but you get the point. Right that's the point. Yeah. yeah. Well, Emily, right. Emily the just point. switching to sort of the post 9-11 response. So, so it's like Marion haste, repent at leisure. It, after 9-11, there was this immediate, very fast response in the United States on all sorts of things, um, whether it was eavesdropping, torture, invading countries. Um, yeah. uh, what are the things that we're going to mess up this time by, by going too fast? Huh. Well, I mean, the surveillance capabilities are already in place. And so I think the, the worst thing we could do right now is alienate our own Muslim population, which is not alienated, which is very integrated. We don't have these huge populations of disaffected, incredibly poor um, Muslims in this country. And that seems to me like it's our greatest strength. It, it wasn't an accident that this happened in France, right? Because there is much more of a sense of discontent and a breeding ground than we have here. And that seems like the most important thing is to hold on to the goodwill of Muslims in America. You're about to say, John? No, no. I'm sorry. So, so what we've already seen, I mean, we've, we've already seen more. example one, which is that as of today, I think 13 governors have now said, we don't want refugees, these Syrian refugees, uh, which, which is like, if you think about it, it's probably just about the worst idea you can come up with. But on the other hand, it obviously gets it, gets it people, people are scared and it's easy to pander to that fear. So what could President Obama or what could Democratic candidates or even Republican candidates who didn't, who wanted to, to sort of tamp down that fear and make people think more expansively or big heartedly do to actually change pe how people think? Or is it, is it not worth trying to fight with people's profound emotions about this? I think yeah. the latter. I think the latter too. I think that's instinctual. And the other thing is that it's to have one person Wait, out so of you all guys, those... Wait, so you guys think that you, sh that no, you should just let... If people say, we don't want refugees, you're like, okay, well, don't take refugees and don't worry about the alienation that's causing it. People say, like, we want to bomb because that'll make us feel better. You bomb. Like, wh what point, do, what point do, do... Is it the responsibility of the, the adults, the sober-minded adults, to, to 
push back against the Trump. Well, there are counterexamples out there. The governor of Connecticut, my adopted state, said, yes, we do want these refugees. So I think having people take a different tack and stand for a different set of values is important right now. But I'm not sure you can tell people who are scared that one terrorist is going to get through that they're wrong because well, have, right. but they're totally wrong but they're, they're not totally wrong. How they are, are they wrong? wrong they're not they, wrong they, about the possibility well they weren't wrong about that. france you know what to me what's amazing about this is that we've been what is it 14 years since 9 11 is that right 14 yes. years since 9 11 this country the the amount of terrorism that's taken place is just tiny well, we've invaded we've invaded three countries we've bombed a whole lot of other ones we you know half the muslim world is really unhappy with us and yet there's, there's essentially no terrorism here. And even if there were an attack, it would be like, okay, there's an attack. They, like, wh- how Not can necessarily. We, how it would depend we, on what the nature of that I attack don't think was. So. So what do you mean, what the nature of that attack was? You remember was? What, what the public opinion did when the beheadings happened, right? The, the, so there, was a, there were questions about whether there should be boots on the ground in Syria because the Assad had gassed his own people. You remember the red line and the vote the president was going to take in Congress. And... The majority of the country overwhelmingly didn't want to have any troops at all have to do anything with Syria. So the president withdrew his effort in Congress, and it um, came to that messy conclusion where, the, where Putin had to, to move in. Um, then there were the beheadings. And then you asked people, would you um, put military, American military troops in Iraq and Syria to go after ISIS? And there was a va- vast majority opinion in support of that. Public opinion, when they saw the beheadings, like switched, completely reversed. Um, so I think that public opinion is at play here. And so politicians- Wait, but so is the answer weighted out or, or pander to that public opinion? Because the, I, they, I don't think anybody I, who thinks rationally about it thinks we should put 200,000 troops into, into Syria to fight ISIS right now. Well, fair enough. But um, I think to the extent that politicians in an election year have occasionally pandered, I think that's the, <laughs> the route they may, they may right. travel y- uh, yet again. Um, do but, you think but we having, should do nothing that we're currently I, doing? I think we should do nothing, yes. So And ISIS grows and becomes, and because they're not, also going to inspire a lot of people problem, now. Not really our problem. Well, so until that's it is. probably not the case. So they want, I mean... So they're not just, I mean, they are, they are growing up in um, disaffected neighborhoods, but I mean, there is, a, there is an ideology at the center of, of and the claims. Right, and I, don't, and I think the, the belief, there is a belief that, at, that we can take action which will effectively reverse that well, ideology. Well, that's a separate question. I don't think any that's a options question. on the table do that. Well, that's a separate then, question. It doesn't mean it's not a problem. I mean, whether the, me- whether the methods to fix it are uh, available in a way that isn't incredibly messy or isn't so big that nobody would support it. Or counterproductive. Or counterproductive. That's all maybe possibly true, but the problem still exists. That's the last word. We've been getting the hook. Thank you, guys. Thank you, the Political Gap Fest. Give them a hand. All right, this is Julia Turner back in the studio to tell you about one of our sponsors this week. If you are a thirsty American, you have probably had the experience of going to the wine store and being utterly perplexed and befuddled. If the wine comes from Europe, it's labeled by where it's from. If it's from America, it's labeled by grape. I didn't even figure that out till I was 28. And although that revelation made many things clear, it still didn't help me understand what any of those things were likely to taste like or which things I should buy. 
if you want to drink wine that you enjoy, you have several options. One is to embark on an extensive course of tasting and study and learn a lot about the wine world. The other is to just join Club W. They are attempting to change everything about buying wine. You go to clubw.com and answer six simple questions, and their algorithm creates a palette profile just for you. Then they send wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. Club W works directly with vineyards to cut out the middlemen, which saves you money. So with Club W, you get premium wine customized to your taste at a third of what you pay at the store. And they even have a no-risk, 100% guarantee that you'll love what they send you. Right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash culture. So stop wasting time and money messing around at retail stores and start drinking wine you know you're going to love. Just go to clubw.com slash culture to get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com slash culture. All right, back to town hall. Time for our next podcasters. I'm certainly not supposed to play favorites up here on the stage. But I can't help it in this case. In all sincerity, there's no other podcast in the world that features my boss. Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and Stephen Metcalf, the Culture Gap Fan. Good evening. Uh, I love how Kois waits until I'm safely off stage to rip on me. It's a nice, a nice feeling. Um, all right, you got to help me out. I've heard a rumor. I need to confirm on this. Someone told me that Daniel Craig moderated the Democratic debate the other night. I think so, yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. I heard that he was disguised as a supremely vanilla, slightly anachronistic anchorman type. <laughs> Something out, really out of another era. But really, the dead giveaway was the absurdly stereotypical mid-Atlantic accent that he was doing. <laughs> Apparently, it was really a gross... Uh, Overreach. Yeah. Hmm. Such um, a shame. Should we do a segment here? <laughs> Master of None is the latest gourmet TV offering from Netflix. It stars Aziz Ansari as Dev, a first-generation Indian-American actor living in New York City with nothing so far but a Gogurt commercial to his name. This is one more Gogurt commercial than I have, so. The show is a great streaming TV comedy of young person's manners. It was co-created by Ansari and Alan Yang. He, I believe, of Parks and Rec? Yep. Can I get a fact check? Thank you. Uh, as is the style, the first season was released in a single blast of 10 episodes. Let's, li let's listen to a clip, please. I told my dad I got a call back on the sickening. He's like, uh, okay, can you fix my iPad? How about, uh, hey, son, great work, or, uh, hey, son, I'm proud of you. Have you ever hung out with a white person's parents, though? They are crazy nice. Yeah. I had dinner once with my last girlfriend's mom, and by the end of that meal, she had hugged me more times than my family has hugged me in my entire life. The problem with this segment going in, not to undermine anybody up here on stage, is that we all love it, right, Julia? It's terrific. They all love it. There's nothing to talk Do about. Do you guys love it? Clap if you love it. It's really good. I was thinking about why it's really good and why it's surprising that it's really good uh, after I, I scarfed a bunch of it down. Um, and the thing to me that seems striking about it is that it is both realist in a way. It, in tone, it's very much like Louis. It's kind of loose and shaggy. It feels very much set in modern day New York and not the kind of glossy technicolor 
you know, network television version thereof, and also a very particular New York full of restaurants that I would bet people in this crowd go to. Certainly there's takeout from a place I get takeout from in it. Um, so it's in a very particular realist slice of New York, and the interactions are fairly realist, and yet the main character is decent and kind and sweet and, like, tries to do the right thing, and realism plus decency seems like a terrible recipe <laughs> for drama or narrative or excitement. And for yet, a segment. and yet, the show is great, and it's really surprising in all these ways. I think it's more cinematic than a lot of television, and then it just includes so many perspectives that we don't typically hear from on television shows, or if we do hear from them, they're like the person on the show who has that perspective. So Aziz Ansari played Tom Haverford on Parks and Rec and was the South Asian guy, and that sh his character was much more than that on that show, and, and he was rich and fully realized. But this show, even in its first short season, g gets into so many issues about race and heritage um, and etiquette and how to think about all of those things um, that you never see on TV. Mm -hmm. So it feels fresh despite realism plus decency. All right, so realism plus decency equals boring happiness, contentedness with the show. Dana, throw a monkey wrench in the <laughs> works here. Well, I, I, had two things, I had two things to say, picking up from what Julia said. One is that I think part of the difference of this show is that word cinematic that you used. I, just, I was really impressed by the degree of technical polish and formal presentation of this show. The titles, the use of music is great. It has this, it's filmed by directors mainly. Mainly cinematic directors have, have directed the episode so far, along with Ansari. And so just that, the fact that it's sort of bringing it on that level, it feels a little bit like girls to me and that they both are TV with a cinematic sensibility. But that is continuing to gush about the show. If you want me to say something negative about it. <laughs> um, just say the New England Patriots. And I mean, let, let's say this. I think that it skirts this problem of nicey-nice, right, the main character being this sweet, gentlemanly guy and not sort of the, uh, the entitled jerk that so many young New Yorkers are in other sitcoms. Um, because... Or the self-loathing, cringe comic a la, you know, Louis or Curb Your right. Enthusiasm, or there, there's sort of a different stripe of male self-loathing that you get that he's also seems free of. Yeah, it's true. He seems like a less neurotic hero than a he's, lot of It's like a male, heroes. placid, earnest, and sincere self-examination, and yet not boring. <laughs> but see, I was going to say that a lot of the situations, I've now seen the whole thing. I binged on the entire 10 episodes. I couldn't stop. And what I kept thinking of is the, uh, the conundrum show that the political gap fest is about to start doing. This show is about moral conundra, basically, right? Each episode presents a different kind of modern comedy of manners moment. The one that we're going to focus on is about his parents and his relationship to his parents, but others, you know, are about sort of the rules of friendship, right? The rules of romantic engagement. And they pose these, these conundra that each episode solves in kind of a satisfying, fable-like way. Mm. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I agree with what both of you have said. Uh, I'll take it even a step further. I think this is a great anti-Orientalist statement on the part of the author of the show. Uh, it's kind of the great grand stepchild of Seinfeld in one limited sense, which is it's a urban singles hanging out with one another, shooting the shit with no obvious source of employment or stress. Um, <laughs> but it inverted the basic premise of Seinfeld, which is, I still believe, I got shit via email for saying this on one of our previous podcasts, but that Seinfeld really was a satire on uh, callousness, and, and it looked for excuses to turn other people into unreal emblems. And I think there was a famous incident where an actor refused to do 
what he perceived as a derogatory Hispanic accent and was kicked off the set. This is the exact opposite of Seinfeld in that regard. It's a show about a young man who's laboring out from under uh, a stereotype. Uh, he's asked as an actor repeatedly to do basically the Apu from Simpsons accent. Uh, he's torn whether to refuse to do that or to further his career. Um, and in la laboring out from under that stereotype, he's decided both, well, Ansari has decided to treat nobody as a stereotype. And I'll give you one quick example. There's a comic set bit where he's taken to a, a front court at a Knicks game as sort of an appeasement on the part of a middle-aged white executive whose email about him was racially uh, insensitive, to put it mildly. And uh, there's a kid sitting a couple of seats away from him who nabs one of his nachos as it's uh, coming towards uh, its final destination, which is, uh, which is Ansari. And he's like, did you just steal my nachos? And you think it's gonna be this comic bit about what a vacuous, spoiled, little creep this kid is, and he absolutely flips it. And instead you find out that the kid's been abandoned by his super rich father and thrown in front of the game as a babysitting substitute, and it's his birthday, and he's devastated. And the comment is like, everyone's walking around with a big fucking monkey on their back. Like, maybe, maybe try to see the monkey. Yeah. <laughs> Great job, guys. Great job. Oh, that's it? Uh, you're like, you still got like eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know that I've ever agreed with Steve so wholeheartedly in one of these shows. <laughs> well, every word I just Great said was total bullshit. <laughs> we just right. went so deep. There's nowhere to go from there. You went as deep <laughs> as you can go. Oh, my God. All right. Well, the one time I tried to be a nice guy, I completely grounded the podcast. So now I know. No, um, I, I, I. Never again forward. All right. Let's get into the theme, Julia, of parenthood. The show's being lauded rightly for its wonderful second episode about the first generation parents of, uh, of the lead character and the Asian character and how similar those two stories are, coming to America, working your ass off, uh, totally um, self-denying uh, on behalf of a second generation then, that then treats you as furniture or a convenience. A wonderful episode. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exciting to see this episode getting so much praise and to see how, what a big response to it there has been among both immigrant parents and immigrants generally and the children of immigrants saying, wow, I have never seen my family story on TV in this way. Um, and the story is also told with these sort of cinematic flashbacks to both Deb and Brian's fam father's pasts um, and kind of cuts through the visual distinction between their lives and, and the current kind of excess and sleek, dark boats that these guys haunt uh, in a really nice way and all of their flashing, dinging technology. Um, yeah, I mean, I I thought that it, it was, I mean, the, actually the contrast I thought of was also Seinfeld, where the parents are, again, the other who has no depth, this kind of screeching, uh, you know. Serenity now! Right, they're, they're, they're the soup Nazi. There's no more richness there, and there's no depth to the character's response to the parents, apart from, like, please, can they move to Florida? Please, can they stop asking me for stuff? I hope I don't have to go there. You know, it's a, it's a constant spate of avoidance and you sympathize somewhat, I guess, with the Seinfeld monsters as they try to avoid their parents. And this, um, I think, but the dilemma is relatable and uh, the solution, again, is very sincere and sweet, which is Brian and Dev take their parents out to dinner uh, and like try to prize some stories of their youth out of them. And it's awkward, but, but charming. Mm. 
Well, I mean, the, the, the key, I think, the, the key thing that he opens up, that Aziz opens up by casting his own parents, I don't know if we've mentioned that, but it's actually Aziz Ansari's parents who play his parents very charmingly and very kind of unprofessionally. Both of them <laughs> deliver their lines like parents that were conscripted and brought in onto the set. <laughs> and that, that difference, his father is full of charisma, his mother is much more withdrawn, but it's that difference that makes them into these kind of folk heroes, like they don't quite belong there. You know, they were brought in from another world just as their characters were brought in for another world. And that gives them this sort of special status on the show, right? They, they're, they're, they don't enter into that world of cinematic polish that I was describing before, and that makes their characters all the more endearing and fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing we might treat very quickly is the first episode, which got less attention, which got into the issue of people of that generation, people between the ages, let's say 25 and 35, having kids, the kind of uh, all joy, no fun uh, dilemmas of parenting. Julia, that was a resonant way of approaching the subject. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the show, the show is fascinated not just by the dilemma of being the, the son and feeling like, do I respect my parents? Do I respect all they gave for me? It, he's also a man on the brink of, of making the choice. I mean, the show opens, the show opens with a sex scene and a broken condom uh, and you know, basically a potential parenthood averted by plan B. Um, and in some ways the show is about the lives that young men and women are able to have because they don't have the lives that we had generations ago in this country or elsewhere in the world. Um, and that, that dilemma too. I mean, that, I think that dilemma gets treated more often in other media. Mm -hmm. It's not. It, it's more the subject, uh, explicit or tacit, of other sitcoms. I guess parenting. It's delightful and uh, exhausting. But um, but I thought it set up the second episode really nicely. Yeah, and that focal shift that happens in the second episode when there's these mini movies, really. I mean, you get these flashbacks that are in a different grain of film and have a completely different visual sensibility for the history of Dev's father and his, his friend Brian, I think is the character's names, father. And, uh, and that was another moment where the show just endeared itself to me with its pure form. I remember mm -hmm. writing down Truffaut in my notes. Those flashbacks, <laughs> just, they remind no me of No higher praise from Dana. <laughs> I wrote down uh, Bill Forsyth. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I totally fucking caught you doing polite laugh. <laughs> so now I know like, you just polite laugh me. Steve, you have the worst polite laugh of any of us, and I'm glad we're going to hash this out here on this stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm polite laughing at you right now. <laughs> All right, let's get down to the final last brass tack question. If this is the direction of American comedy, Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, one at a time, am I going to have to give up my habits of other negation and belittlement. <laughs> you should do that anyway. <laughs> stop, just stop with the polite laugh. Did you hear the question? Answer it. What? And, and lose the distinctive voice you bring to the podcast? No, that can't happen. <laughs> All right, on that note, the show is called Master of None, and it's, uh, it's streaming on Netflix at a laptop near you. Watch it all. Ladies and gentlemen, the Cultural Gabfest. All right, this is Julia Turner back in the studio breaking in once more for another word from our sponsor. This week, the Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. 
Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Let's go on to our third segment. Now, I pitched these guys a lot of topics for tonight. Um, the glorious legacy of Dean Smith, why there will definitely be no sanctions against the UNC basketball team, is Mike Krzyzewski actually literally physically a giant rat? But they went their own way. God love them. They chose something else. Please welcome Josh Levine, Mike Pesca, and Stefan Fatsis. Hang up and listen. Hello, everyone. So every week on our show, we do something called Whimsy Watch. And instead of just doing a regular segment, we're going to devote our entire time to whimsy. Let's be whimsical. <laughs> it's weird. I was just overcome by this weird urge to visit New York. I don't know why. <laughs> I can't deny the urge. You've been transported there magically yeah. by the technology of podcasting. So my uh, Whimsy Watch this week, it's a search for whimsy in the NFL, the least whimsical entity on earth. Um, a running back for the Washington football team. Stefan, you said you didn't hear about this. He not. found $15 on the field. <laughs> it was by, it was Matt Jones, it was by his teammate Pierre Garçon. He founds the $15 at the beginning of the second half. He asks Pierre, is this yours? <laughs> he says no. They decided to share it. Now, um, that might be the most whimsical moment we've ever done. Couple follow-ups. Does that violate the salary cap? If that was the NCAA, would it be an illegal benefit? Could he use the money to buy Pierre Garçon on FanDuel or Rotowire <laughs> because Pierre Garçon has sued those sites? The little-known addendum to that is that Dan Snyder asked for the 750 back. <laughs> mm. Uh, whimsy? Whimsy, Mike? Well, a little later on, Dana and John are going to interview the, uh, some of the actors from Hamilton. So my whimsy watch concerns Hamilton, the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. <laughs> Jeremiah Masakwai? Masoli. Masoli. The incredibly corrupt CFL, Mike? Yeah. yeah. The, uh, this podcast is a guerrilla marketing campaign for <laughs> Canadian football. At... Playing at Tim Horton Field, he <laughs> threw two interceptions, was benched, not because of performance, but the coach said so he could clear his head. Good that that, good that, that mental health time coincided with a strong desire not to have any more turnovers. But the Ham Tiger Cats came back, won the game, and they, they face the Red and Blacks in the Eastern Final. Can either of you guys tell me what team are the Red, the red Blacks? The Red Blacks. I'll give you a hint. In French, it's rouge et noir. Stefan? <laughs> the, the Alouettes? No, it's, no. The, it's the Ottawa Red Blacks. Ottawa. The uh, Ottawa Red Montreal Blacks. The, the Alouettes. Yes. The answer was Ottawa. Ottawa. Uh, Stefan. There was also, speaking of Canadian football, because who doesn't, there was an 88-yard rouge in the, in the CFL over the weekend. I don't know wow. if you knew that. Wow. Does anyone know what a rouge is? <laughs> I think we we're, do. We I, think we're, I think we're out of time. Should we go to... <laughs> 
Should we go to our segment? Let's go to our segment. All right. Um, the World Anti-Doping Agency released a report last week documenting an enormous state-sponsored Russian track and field doping conspiracy, a program that WADA compared to the old Soviet Union system. The international governing body of track and field, the IAAF, responded by suspending every Russian track and field athlete from competition immediately, an act that Russian hurdler Sergei Shubinkov says is very unfair. He compared it to being in kindergarten and having every kid punished because someone pooed in the wrong place. <laughs> he actually said that. Uh, some specific allegations from the report as well as from a German documentary. Marathon champion paid the Russian Federation $550,000 to cover up a positive doping test. The head of the testing lab destroyed more than 1,400 drug tests right after WADA asked for them, which is rude. Um, and Russia's state security service embedded inside the drug testing lab and intimidated the engineers. Um, so, Stefan, we've talked about doping before. Kind of jaded responses. What's new here? Why should we care? Is there something new and different? And should we care about what Russia's doing? Uh, yeah, we should care about what, what Russia's doing because of the scope of it and because of the, in the, the sheer embeddedness of this in the Russian government and in the geopolitics of international sports. Look at who we said were the most corrupt organizations on the planet. I mean, the NFL, obviously. But beyond that, IOC and FIFA. This is an interconnected network of sportocrats. These bureaucrats all sit on each other's boards and executive committees. The uh, Russian sports minister is on the executive committee of FIFA, surprise, surprise. Uh, the head of the track federation, Sebastian Coe, the great uh, English middle distance runner, he is also on FIFA's, he was the, he was the head of ethics on FIFA, uh, for FIFA. <laughs> Uh, he just took over the track federation, so his job is to clean it up. But we should care because it is reminiscent of not just the Cold War and the Soviet era, but of, 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 of what the Soviet Union did, but of particularly East Germany and also of China in the, in the 1990s in swimming and other sports. This is, an, this is endemic in international sports. I say we should care because it's the biggest scandal in the history of sports, in my opinion. Literally, the Russians, they might be able to weasel their way out of this, or as they say in Russian, to Kodiak bear their way out of this, but they will not be, their track athletes will not be allowed to compete in the 2016 Olympics. Maybe. There were, right now, that's what's on the books, there were a hundred Russian track athletes. There were more Russian track athletes in London than any country but the US and the UK. And I say it's the worst scandal in the history of sports because scandals that are things like person associated with sports does something terrible, like Ray Rice or Aaron Hernandez, is that really so much sports? So to find the worst scandal, you have to go, that, go to one that affects winning and losing. And so you have things like throwing the World Series in 1919, terrible scandal, one sport, one team. You have things like the East Germans, or you have things like um, the Tour de France, but it was endemic in the sport. But that's cycling. This is track and field. This is 100 athletes who were doping. The amount of cheating was they had a shadow lab. So you have the real lab, and then you had a Russian lab pre-testing the samples, and then eventually throwing 1,400. Did they have the shadow lab. lab hidden behind a bookcase? 
Where you pulled the book and it flipped around? Yes, and a little statue of the guy's head, and then there was... But this is, I mean, this, we, we are so jaded that maybe we don't realize it. And I know the New York Times put it on their front page, but I've been looking at the sports section. You know, the last two days, they haven't had anything on it. This is gigantic. There are going to be other countries. There are going to be other sports. One of the reasons why Dick Pound, who put together this investigation, he wanted all of cycling out of the Olympics, and the other sports said no. Guess why? Because track's dirty. Guess what else is dirty? I know biathlon's dirty. There are so many countries and so many sports that are cheating that I don't even know if you can have an Olympics. Oh. <laughs> so um, my favorite kind of detail, and there are a lot of good ones besides that, even that pooping anecdote, um, the uh, race walking federation in Russia is incredibly dirty. So three race walkers have already been suspended. The coach has been suspended. And one of the actual you know, effects of this, they might not be able to get in the Olympics, but Russia was going to host the race walking team championships. Yes. That has been canceled. Yeah. It's going to cost the Russian economy tens of rubles. <laughs> it's going to devastate their already hurting economy. Um, Stefan, can we compare this to the American way of doping? Let me just say yeah, that race ahead. walking is hard and it looks ridiculous. So I think every race walker that is slighted by this is doubly affected. He's doubly hurt. I think well, this is terrible. They give they give their sprinters performance enhancing drugs to slow them down to become, to become champion race walkers. Race walkers. That's right. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> but to, before I get to the Americans, the you know we laugh about the race walking world championships being held in Russia, but the complicity of all of these international organizations is that we keep giving these events to Russia, the World Cup, the Sochi Olympics, the race walking championships. <laughs> the race walking championships. That wasn't part of a package deal? It's not a package <laughs> that deal. That was for on race walking. The Olympics in China. There are so few countries that want to host these events that we have now gotten to the point that these autocratic regimes are the ones that are willing to spend the money. And when they're willing to spend the money, what else are they willing to do in order to, to win? They're willing to enact these systemic widespread doping yeah. systems where athletes are coerced into taking drugs, they are forced, and then if they don't, if they dissent, they are punished. You can't, you can't have been a Russian track athlete and probably a lot of other sports without being part of this. This was by far an open secret. Experts would look at the list of Russian athletes and the times in Russia would be you know, near world record times and they would say, yeah, but this meets in China. Yeah, but this meets in Germany. They won't be able to take their drugs. This was so known. And you want to talk about other shoes to drop. I mean, what are the chances, really, that the fastest man in the world, the second fastest man in the world, the fastest woman in the world, and the third fastest woman in the world are all from the same Caribbean nation of, set of two million? And the Jamaicans... Wow. Wow. the Jamaicans Throwing the gauntlet down. I mean, the Kenyans are about to be busted left and right. So many of the countries that we say, oh, Kenyans great at marathoning, Jamaicans great at sprinting, I, you don't want to make the charge without the proof. However, it just... However, he just did. <laughs> it really... You could either be naive or you could say, you know, is it that they love racing so much? What, they didn't love it 12 years ago? Now all of a sudden you have this generation of... And, oh, no other country runs like the, like the Jamaican sprint. I mean, if they, I really do think if they did drug testing, everyone that we... Mm, 
50% of the people that we think are heroes would be cheats. I'm, I'm going to push back on this a little bit because in, here in the United States of America, great country, but we're a little bit... <laughs> We're a little bit hypocritical about this. Travis Tiger, the CEO of the US Anti-Doping, just comes off as a huge dick. Like, he says, um, evidence released today demonstrates a shocking level of corruption, sends a clear message to Russia that they'll not be allowed to cheat the world's athletes and escape justice behind a wall of deception and lies. Yeah. This is the country that produced Marion Jones, Justin Gatlin, uh, Tyson Gay. But the thing that I find interesting is that the US system of doping, and you can't kind of make too much of a conclusion based on the people who get caught because maybe they're the ones who are doing a really bad job at it. But it's just so ad hoc, and it seems like with Tyson Gay, David Epstein of ProPublica. We need to be more organized the way that Russia and well, China and other countries we are. We need a shadow lab. David Epstein did this report on Tyson Gay, and it's like he heard that some guy in the NFL was going to see a chiropractor in Atlanta who had cream in a tube that like the doctor didn't even know what it was. There's not even any indication that the stuff works and they still get caught using it. Um, so well, that's because, it's I like mean, a very entrepreneurial capitalistic way of cheating it's badly. It's the American way of doping. Those rumors, those rumors, by the way, are why I got stuck with oregano at Washington Square Park <laughs> that one time. <laughs> I, Okay, so let's say people in the audience are saying... We got we, the two-minute warning, by yeah, the way. Yeah, let's say people in the audience are saying, what can we do about it? You know, there's sports, there's nothing Nobody's we can do. Saying that, but go ahead. The World Anti-Doping Agency's budget is about $25 million. Joe Johnson of the Brooklyn Nets salary is $25 million. If you're not a sports fan, he's kind of a mediocre basketball player. If you're a sports fan, you probably didn't know this, but Joe Johnson's a mediocre basketball player. We're totally unserious about catching cheats if we fund this. IOC's kind of rich. A lot of these countries are kind of rich. We fund it to the tune, this pittance. You know, it's, this is why it's a joke, because the, the countries and the federations want it to be a joke. Well, Russia threatened to pull its, like, several hundred thousand dollars of funding for anti-doping. <laughs> well, with the, fall, with the fall of oil, what can you expect? Um, so, Stefan, um, the head of the IOC, Thomas Bach, already kind of undermined the punishment, basically saying they're going to get everything in order for the Olympics. I have a lot of faith in the Russians. So do you think that this is going to change anything in Russia? Do you think that we'll be able to overcome our jadedness and something will happen? Let me quote Vladimir Putin. <laughs> <laughs> A sporting contest is only interesting when it is honest, said the man who scores 10 goals a game when he plays ice hockey against <laughs> professionals during exhibitions. I don't, I'm not terribly optimistic that, that anything will change practically in Russia, but what will change is that they will do enough so that, and they will say enough so that the IOC and the reformed International Track Federation can say to themselves, we have cleaned things up, it is time to let Russia back into the fold and welcome them back into the Olympic community, the family. Russia, and that's what's going to happen. Russia in the 2016 Olympics, Russia track athletes, yes, yes. or no? Yes definitely, or no? Definitely yes. Mm, duh. <laughs> A good way to end. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, thanks. Hang up and listen. So, let's move on to our next segment. I am not throwing away my shot to introduce our fourth segment. The hottest ticket in years here on Broadway is Hamilton, the fantastic musical playing just a few blocks away on 46th Street. The show is funny, sexy, exciting, and smart. It is the perfect show for anyone who's looking for some minds at work, work. 
It's a totally fascinating combination of politics, history, and art, so it makes total sense for us to bring back Dana and John to talk about it. And joining them, we have the actors responsible for my two favorite performances in the show, Aaron Burr, the prodigy of Princeton College, and the Marquis de Lafayette, the Lancelot of the revolutionary set. Please welcome Dana, John, Leslie Odom Jr., and David Diggs. <laughs> Wow, I'm hearing some Hamiltonian love in the room. How many people have seen the show? Clap. <laughs> I think it, it means something that there's not a huge number of people clapping, but they clapped very loudly. <laughs> um, so, assuming that we have not all seen the show, and as John and I were discussing when we were getting questions together for this segment, before we saw Hamilton, we both had this, sort of went in with a similar skepticism, like, what is this thing? I don't understand. What is this thing that everyone's talking about? It's, it's such an experiential thing, the show, as it's put together, that it's sort of like you have to be hamilton to get it. And so for those in the crowd who have not been hamilton I wanted to just start with that. I wanted to talk a little bit about the magic of this show. Like where, where do you sense audiences responding to it? What was it like when you first responded to it? Can you lay out for people who haven't seen the show what it is that, that's special about it? Well, I haven't seen this version of our show. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to come back from my vacation. I'm taking a vacation, first vacation in January. So that means I, you've never been understudied then, correct? I have missed, I missed a weekend because I was so tired, but I didn't watch the show when I, you know, I was at home on my couch getting better. But for my, my official vacation, I'm going to come back a day early and, and watch the show for the first time. But I did have the kind of cool experience of seeing a reading of the show. They were doing it at Vassar at the um, festival out there for New Works. And David was in it, and Chris Jackson was in it. Um, Javi was in it at that time, Javi. Uh, but I, you couldn't get tickets even then. I tweeted Lynn, like, hey, I hear you're doing this thing up there. I'd like to come see it. This is when it Wait, was called the Hamilton Mixed your own show? I was not in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, man, I know it's hard to get tickets, but if, <laughs> if they're not even letting you in. <laughs> and you'd be surprised. I still can't get tickets to my own show. But um, I was not in it then. They were doing a reading of, of Act One about two and a half years ago, and I mean, I was just blown away, like everybody else, you know. And this was before there was dancing or costumes or anything. It was just the word and, and the music. And um, it just was, I mean, in the first five minutes of this thing, you know, Lynn steps forward and introduces himself as Alexander Hamilton, and you never question it again. Um, then Chris Jackson steps forward and says he's George Washington, and you never question it again. So it reminded me of the power of theater. It reminded me of why we all got into this thing in the first place, because it was because we could push boundaries and have these um, healing, wonderful conversations as a community. And I just never forgot it. And the first time I met Diggs, I was like, I fanboyed out because I was like, <laughs> you were in that thing that I saw. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, that was the first time I had come into contact with it was, was doing that reading that we had worked on for maybe five days beforehand. And so I'm part of, of Lynn and Tommy are, have created this sort of other event called Freestyle Love Supreme that I'm a part of. And yeah, yeah, all right. Um, which is like an improvised rap uh, 
event. And we were, we were at the Super Bowl when it was in New Orleans freestyling about sports celebrities on ESPN. That was like, a, that's a real gig that we did. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Sorry to interrupt, what was the best rhyme from that gig? Do you remember? Oh man, I, here's the funny thing about me when I freestyle is I never, if it's good, I don't remember it afterwards. Nice. Uh, that's, that's the sign that I did well. If I remember it, it means it was terrible. <laughs> so, um, so I think those shows were good because I don't remember them. Um, but, but it was, Eli Manning was a fun guy to rap about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> he was like sort of just shocked the whole time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we finished this week. We're, we're in New Orleans for a week, and it's totally crazy in this bizarre schedule. And Tommy comes up to me afterwards, and he says, hey, Lynn's working on this new thing. It's, it's Alexander Hamilton. There's a lot of like real heavy lifting rap work in it, and we're going to have five days to put something together up at Vassar. Would you come do it? And I was like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Of course I'll do it. <laughs> um, and then they sent me the music, and I had to apologize immediately. I was like, this is the best, e even without seeing it, even hearing Lynn's demos, which is Lynn doing every single part, um, over like garage band beats that he made himself. Uh, it was the best thing I'd ever heard. When uh, are you going to leak those demos? Uh, yeah. I, I won't. I'm not going to be responsible for that shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it, it was amazing even then. And then I get in the room and like, just like Leslie said, I saw, I saw Chris Jackson sing for George Washington and immediately everything I ever thought about George Washington was wrong. Um, and this George Washington was so much better. Yeah. He was so much more interesting. I never paid attention in history class. I didn't care about any of this stuff. You know, I mean, everything, this is, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but not much of one to say that everything I know about American history I learned from working on this show. Like, I don't, well. you know. Um, and so, and part of that is because um, the way these characters are drawn and the the brilliant people who play them are so, they're so alive, there's so much living, breathing personhood in them that like you, you can't not sort of fall in love with them. So that's my exact reaction to both of you. So, um, <laughs> so let's, Leslie, let's start with you. Tell us, I want you both to talk about the characters you play and the role they play in this uh, amazing work. Um, we had a, so I'm just going to go on a limb here. So is Aaron Burr the narrator of the... Are you considered the narrator of this, or am I? do I have that totally wrong? No, I think that's absolutely right. Oh, phew. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> well, and, well, and, you know, in art, really, there, it really didn't matter what you said, you were right. Because it's, you know... It's because, you know, you guys get to... You know, you get to... We do something, and then you decide what it is. You, you mirror it back to us. That's what's so great. There comes a point in the process where we desperately need an audience to tell us if it's funny, to tell us if it's moving, because we don't know anymore. And so what is Burr, what's, what Burr, what's Burr's role other than being the narrator in the production? Um, I got all my clues initially from Lynn's music. It was, you know, it was later that I started to do research on who Burr was, um, which is, you know, fascinating and um, so helpful. But for, at first, I just took all my clues from what Lynn wrote. Um, it was hit the rhythms and the syncopation and the, the pulse of the thing, you know. Um, because Burr is the narrator, it, um, he's your guide 
through this story. I look at it, I look at it, this is not to tell you how you should look at it, but um, I think of the evening as Burr telling you um, about the most interesting person he's ever known who he just happened to kill. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting you say that about the music because it's right that in the songs, especially the Burr shares with those other founding fathers, that group of friends at the beginning of the show, there's a real distinction between Burr's lines, the sort of smoothness of those song, of those bits, and the, the sort of sharp, more aggressive rapping and singing of the other bits. And there's a sense that Burr is the guy who is trying to suggest a different path for the revolution, a different path for these guys to go politically, and that's reflected in the music. Yeah. And that, I mean, yeah, that, it was, for me, it was, you know, it was the first, my first task was to pick up all the breadcrumbs that Lynn had dropped in his music. And, you know, and I think the creative process, when done well, there's all the stuff that happens consciously, and then there's some stuff that happens, uh, a ho hopefully a lot of stuff that happens subconsciously. There's stuff that I believe Lynn has baked in the score that he doesn't even realize. It's the stuff from when he was a child, or, you know, and so yeah. it's my job to find as much of that as I can, and so, yeah, the, the music told me, to answer your question, the music told me that I needed to be bold and brash and tender and exciting and warm and, most importantly, that I needed to keep checking in with you to make sure that you get it, to make sure that I bring you along. That's what I knew. And quickly, before I go to David, um, there is that, there's one line that, j that hit me when you're talking about the Federalist Papers. Immediately, you understand the emotional <laughs> impact of this. <laughs> so this, by the way, this literally is true. This is what this piece of work is, is about. There are so many moments like this. But when you mentioned that Alexander Hamilton wrote 51 of the... I was like overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I swear to God, it's true. So when you gave that line, you're Aaron Burr, you're his nemesis, you have this, but when you deliver that line, what's, I'll just tell you what it felt like to me, that you're like cheering for, you're like, that is the baddest ass thing he ever did. <laughs> but you're also, so it, it, that's like you're the narrator, but you're also the character who's his enemy. That was yes, striking. He's inside it. He's outside of it. He marvels at him. He's jealous of him. He is excited by him. He celebrates him. He hates him. He loves him. It's all that stuff. And that's what, I mean, that's drama. That's theater. That was what was so exciting about what Lynn was offering us the chance to do was th the fact that we could do all of those things. And now tell us about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, <laughs> um, well, Thomas Jefferson, who who shows up only in the second act, um, shows up from France and um, having missed the entirety of the revolution in France and s steps into the U.S. is made Secretary of State and and is like, can nobody tell him he's not the hottest motherfucker around? You know what I'm saying? Like he's like. Uh, He's got it all, he's a genius, he's rich, he's got so many slaves, and, he, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then he runs up against Alexander Hamilton, um, who is every bit intellectually his equal. He's been there also, so he's many steps ahead of him in this whole process, and Jefferson has no idea what to do with him. 
And so Jefferson, for me, like Jefferson's whole track in that act is trying to figure this guy out. And it's not even, he's too much of a politician to care whether or not he likes him or not. He hates him. That's not important. It's about how can I use this person to my advantage because he's just whooping me all the time. He's always one step ahead of me. And I think for, for somebody like Jefferson who has had everything handed to him, that is the most frustrating thing in the world. I wanted to ask a, a little bit of a more formal question about how you prepared these roles. Besides researching the historical characters you were playing, you're both coming at this work from different angles. David, you're primarily a rapper before. You'd done some theater, but you'd never done musical theater, correct? <laughs> and Leslie, you were coming entirely from theater and musical theater. You had done, I think, Rent previously on Broadway, right? So, so can you talk about you know, how you, you met in the middle, how you each sort of mastered a new discourse to, to play these parts? Yeah, my task was to find my inner MC because, um, and he's inner. <laughs> Tiny little MC all the way deep, deep inside. But uh, yeah, because that, that was daunting for me, you know, not being, uh, you know, because there's, in my living of this, in my experience of this material, there's two things that I think are probably tantamount in hip hop. Um, one of them is, the, I mean, the first thing I didn't have. The first thing is the credibility of your pen. You have to write it in hip-hop. I mean, that is, that is your, if you didn't write your rhymes, like, that's, like, that's the worst. Well, it used to be. We're much more <laughs> forgiving of that now than we used to be. <laughs> but it happens in secret. You know, it hap it's, the, called, it's called ghostwriters. You know, right. it happens in secret. Um, that, you know, that started, like, the latest rap beef, like, started because right. one person said, like, you don't write. Right. So, um, so that, so I had to sort of get over that part of it. So how, you know, how do I find my inner MC if I didn't write this, the, what I'm, um, saying each night and th but then what I discovered is kind of uh, right next to that is authenticity um, you know the other thing about hip-hop is that it's about authenticity or the appearance of authenticity right and so, so is politics right <laughs> <laughs> so you know so those gold chains that you rented I need to believe that you need to sell them as if you as if you own them. So what I so to set all that to say, what I had to find was um, who my inner MC is. You know, it, you've got one too, and so do you. You know, it's <laughs> no one in the audience believes that. <laughs> but just, I appreciate it. It's only because it's only because you don't believe it yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it's about. It doesn't matter if you're from the suburbs or South Central, you know, it's just, you know, what hip hop is about is about telling the truth of your story. Um, so uh, we, we find as, as much truth as we possibly can inject into these characters. That's one of the things that you're feeling is like, you know, Lafayette and, uh, and Thomas Jefferson have been, you know, injected with all of the spirit of David Diggs, you know, and, you know, when I do my job right, it's, you know, Burr is, is as close to me as I can possibly make him. Yeah, I think it's the exact same process in the other direction, I think. I mean, and I, the, the great thing about Lynn, you know, having, having been in a lot of plays and done a lot of theater, but certainly never on this scale and never a musical, but I've been approached with a lot of, of play, theater, things for the theater that had rap in them and the rap was always so bad, you know, um, that 
the, the thing about Lynn is he's a really, really good rapper. Like, by rapper standards, he's a good rapper. <laughs> so, um, so you get to approach these songs when, when I'm rapping in these songs. I got to approach them like they were rap songs. Um, the cadences make sense. The rhyme schemes are complicated when they need to be. Every character raps differently than each other. I mean, like, um, it's, it's amazing. So I got to do that, which I'm very comfortable with. That kind of work is a thing I'm very comfortable with. And it was great for me because I'm in a rehearsal hall where I'm totally uncomfortable with everything else. You know what I'm saying? I don't know how to warm up properly. This is like, I mean, this guy's voice is so, I just like, I don't even know how it happens. And I, I say, uh, I, it, people ask me all the time, like, what's your favorite thing that you get to do in the show? And my favorite thing is singing back up for Wait For It because I would never get to sing back up for Leslie Odom Jr. You crazy? Like, I get, you know. I feel like I don't even, I had his album, you know, before we ever really hung out. Like, I, like it, you know, the sounds that come out of my mouth do not sound like the ones that come out of his mouth. And I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to make it happen. So um, for me, it was like getting over all of, all of that fear and figuring out, well, what the hell do I do when I have to sing? And fortunately, like Alex Lacamoire, um, would always find like 90 minutes in a week to just pull me aside and be like, you rap really good, sing like you rap. You know, like just talk and on pitch and you'd be good, you know, uh, like just make me feel really comfortable. Um, and, then, and then similarly, just, just try to infuse as much of myself into the characters that I could so that when I'm doing these things that I think for David are pretty out of body, like the, as, as long as it makes sense for David as Jefferson to do it, then I'm cool. And then we can have that sort of feeling of authenticity, um, even when I'm surrounded by like the most incredible singers I've ever heard before. And like every time I stop and step back from it, I sort of never want to go on stage again with them. You know? <laughs> but fortunately, like I can, I can block my brain to that enough to show up every day. <laughs> All right, thank you guys so much. We, we love talking you. to you. <laughs> idea for our next Slate live show, Slate the Inner MCs. Let's make it happen, Andy Bowers. Uh, all right, we're on to our final segment of the evening. Let's get all nine podcasters back out on the stage, please. All right, I need you to please organize yourselves by height. Tallest over there, shortest over here, thank you. While they're doing that, <clears throat> I just want to acknowledge the Slate Plus members in our audience. If you're a member of Slate Plus, please, let's have a round of applause from you. Thank you so much for being a member. Uh, many of you entered our raffle tonight for awesome gift baskets featuring items selected by our podcasters, movies picked by, picked by Dana and Steve, books from the Hang Up and Listen crew, uh, Emily Bazelon's favorite snack, uh, and the winners of the Slate Plus raffle, please, after the show, look for Jennifer Lai, who will be back at the box office to get your basket. The winners are Amber Siegel, Emily Reed, and Albert Kahn. And thank you to all Slate Plus members. All right, they're still organizing themselves by eye. It required the editor-in-chief to make it happen. All right, good job, guys. Uh, okay. 
So this is our final round. It is a, uh, a lightning round debate. Let's get our first four in line up on stage on the pro and con side. <clears throat> All right, I have in this very Broadway-ish hat uh, some extremely bold statements. Jazz hat. It's a jazz hat. <laughs> this is my jazz hat. Um, I'm going to pull a statement out, read it to these four debaters, and they will have 90 seconds to debate pro or con. At the end, you guys will vote on who won. All right. Are you guys ready? Pro will begin this debate. Statement number one, Charles Schultz should have let Charlie Brown kick the football even once. Pro, go. You totally missed the point of Peanuts if you think that it's a fun show about Snoopy being cute. Peanuts is about disappointment. Peanuts is about life never living up to your expectations. The very first ever panel of Peanuts, I think it was then called Lil Folks, was there's Charlie Brown, good old Charlie Brown. Oh, how much I hate him. It is a dark and depressing strip, and to Wait, give him that pro- victory we're is on a the sellout. Pro side. No, it was should. That he should let him kick the football. But this is not in keeping (laughs) with modernity. You're arguing against cause. Here's the deal. This was a post-war depressive mindset. Hostile witness. (laughs) I'm a mole. Here's the deal. It wasn't a TV show. It was a comic strip. It showed up every day, which is a testament to perseverance. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole deal with Charlie Brown is he perseveres again and again, despite all of life's disappointments. That's also why he plays baseball. Uh, he continues to go again and again and again, and the reward ultimately, after being tricked so many times by Lucy, is that finally you in life get to kick the football, which is also a well-known euphemism for a variety of things um, that you want to do. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and further, therefore, it should let's go to Khan. Right. I, I mean, it's. I just, I refer to the gentleman's previous remarks. <laughs> They've been expunged from the record. What? I, That's I why mean, Lincoln Chafee dropped out. It's very, it's, it's, um, John, I think as you know, Charles Schultz is dead. It always ends in disappointment and despair. Why disappoint children by telling them it doesn't? This is why. why. No, no, let God. him keep going. It's helping us. I'm still recovering from Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard getting together on Moonlighting. That should have never happened. Charlie Brown should never kick the football. All right, let's give it up. All right, by applause, who cheers for the pro side? And the con side as represented by Mike Pesca. Somehow the pro side won. Congratulations. Can my pro debaters come to the con side? Can my con debaters head to the back of the line? Can we have two more? I pulled out the next question. Pro or con, televised debates are a wonderful way for candidates to present real ideas to voters. Pro can begin. Well, televised debates are one of the very few situations in which we see candidates do something that they have not planned to do. It's very difficult. It takes an incredibly skilled, almost unfathomably skilled person to get them to do it, but (laughs) most of what they do day to day is say exactly what they've planned to say, set up situations where they they can't be forced off script, and so we learn more about them in off-scripted moments, and although there are very few, even in debates, 
there are at least some, and we get glimmers of humanity. Con? You know... <laughs> we'll come back to you, Steve, for a rebuttal. You know, Jeb Bush is doing terribly in these debates, but you know what job never requires for you to out-argue nine other people? The presidency. <laughs> Do you know what job never requires for you to give a zinger back to the goddamn moderator who's always interrupting you? The presidency. They barely could... They could scarcely pick an exercise that's less applicable to the job of the presidency than these Thunderdome-esque debates to the moderator. <laughs> Back to Pro for a rebuttal, please. Oh, are there rebuttals? Can I pile on? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the problem is that up. what happens with it is that no matter, even if the, the moderator wants to be a window through which people watch the debate, that somehow even their close friends make the moderator the central thing of the debates. <laughs> and that is a total travesty and a, an insult to the moderator who hopes to be merely the conveyance vehicle through which people watch and learn about the candidates to whom they are going to give this power in a system of separated powers. <laughs> Pro. I dropped the mic, but it's all wound up. <laughs> a, a presidential election in a modern mass democracy is basically a several-month-long, 24, 36-month-long sniff test and absent a technology that allows us to actually sniff each of the candidates, I believe the only adequate substitute is a televised debate. There's nothing more to say. Right, very nice. D. Uh, please don't drop the mic so we put a deposit on them. Um, Julia and Steve, let's hear the votes for the pro side. And the con side. That's a victory for the cons. Can I have my pros move over? Can I have my next two debaters? By height, great. Uh, all right, next question. Broadway theater is a dying art form that no serious person should care about. Pro side, begin. There are far more better ways in this age of technology, immediacy, human experience that we can enjoy through a smaller screen where we can experience something far more intimately than we can in a theater filled with people whose reactions we can't gauge. It's a dying art form that is really unnecessary. And however beautiful it is for those who experience it, it's incredibly inaccessible because it's so expensive. How can we put so much talent money? And for so few people to enjoy. Right. Exactly. Con? Well, first of all, it's a retirement plan for rock stars whose heyday is 20 to 35 years in the past. Can we switch places, so, you and me, please, now? So you're essentially, you want to take food out of the mouths of Sting's poor children. <laughs> Second of all... <laughs> Second of all, how else in America are you going to take things from the, main, uh, from the fringe of the culture, bring them into the mainstream, and convert them into kitsch for future generations to appreciate? I would add, 
that one of the great problems with the performed arts is that it's hard to get at interiority, right? You can see conversation, you can see dialogue. <laughs> You're on my side. Just for this one little debate. Um, and song, when, when characters break into song, they can say the things that they cannot actually say, and it allows transcendent moments of emotional joy. A bad musical is a very bad experience, but the truly great ones, like Hamilton and the Buffy musical episode, <laughs> are truly transcendent works of art that get at human experience in ways that nothing else can. You might want to add fun home to your list. I'm very just nice. saying. I like it's fun good home to see too. the pandering is alive in these debates, too. Uh, let's hear our cheers for the pro side. <laughs> and for the con side. That's another victory for the cons. Can I have my cons off the stage and my pros over to the con side? Emily and Stefan over here. Thank you. Next two. All right, here we go. Uh, pro and con, you should be able to go into your spouse or partner's email anytime you want to. Pro, go. Uh, since Dana is married, I think I, or, uh, I'd like to defer on this question to your, to your greater experience on this issue. I don't know, let's say, well, okay, so <laughs> what does privacy mean in this modern era? We're all being surveyed at all times by GPS systems orbiting the Earth. Mark Zuckerberg already knows everything about what we buy, what we do, what we see. There could be active threats in my partner's email. <laughs> And it would serve the greater good of the country. It would invade her privacy, but she would want this country to be safe. <laughs> Let's have the con side. In this world in which marriage is so revealing anyway, it's incredibly important to keep certain things to yourself. Every person deserves to have some kind of zone of their own space, their own brain space. And our email, our text messages are essentially our brains. And you, you want to have some kind of mystery left, some sense. Also, who wants to look? Who wants to boss? Like, oh. Well, given that most marriages end in divorce, isn't email a more lasting, uh, <laughs> more lasting document? I don't of think your people reading each other's emails is a good divorce prevention measure. It would only lead to more divorce. Stefan, do you have something to add on the con side? That there is. That we need to protect some. It's not just the space. It's the electronic intrusion in our lives that we hate. I mean, it's sort of like the theater, right? You don't want to go to the theater. It's a, but this is the opposite argument here. I don't think it's a good idea here. to recall that one. No, not a good idea. Okay, we lost that one. Sorry. Um, that we need some sort of freedom from intrusion from technology, and keeping one more set of eyes out of our email is probably a good idea. These All arguments right. sound like just cover-ups for the dark deeds that lurk uh, within the emails Dana, Dana, of Emily Dana, and John Fett. You gotta stop or the machine breaks down. All right, so <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a vote. Pro side. <laughs> Con side. The pro in a narrow victory. Stefan, please stay. Actually, everyone to the back line. Everyone to the back line. Uh, that's another victory here. Now I need you to please reorder yourselves. Let's shuffle this order. Um, please reorder yourself by political philosophy going from left <laughs> to right. You've got 10 seconds. Go. <laughs> Metcalf just ran off the stage. 
Clarence Dickerson right in the middle. <laughs> okay, can I have my next four debaters up from that side? Steve and Emily come around to the con side. Stephanie and Dana on the pro side. Emily, you're over here. Thank you. All right, here is our next question. Ready? Adults who have favorite colors are weird. <laughs> Pro, please begin. Every day our culture grows more infantilized. Am I wrong? We, <laughs> we are jumping in the bouncy houses of our own souls. There is no more room for adulthood in America. And this movement to have every adult identify their favorite color is something that needs to be nipped in the bud. First of, all, first of all, not only should every self-respecting adult have a favorite color, that color ought to be derived from their favorite My Little Pony. <laughs> and they should have a favorite pattern, polka dots, stripes, plaid, paisley. Thank you. <laughs> the point being, if you've lost touch with your inner My Little Pony, you're inevitably going to lose touch with your outer My Little Pony. <laughs> And that's a moral asymmetry none of us want to ponder. <laughs> Back to pro. I think Steve has a favorite My Little Pony, doesn't he? Pinkie Pie. <laughs> <laughs> Exit stage right, baby. Do we have any more words from the con side? No? All right. Uh, let's hear it. Votes for pro. Votes for Khan. It's a clear victory for Khan. All right, you two rotate out. You two rotate over. Two more in. We only have a few questions left. Pro or Khan, college students are too fragile. I know, I brought it. We don't get colors. College students are too fragile today. Uh, this concern about trigger warnings, it does, I don't think we should dismiss it out of hand and say that students um, are abnegating free speech and I'm not sure that's even the right way to use that verb, but. Look, um, may I? Yeah. <laughs> As we know from our political season, what's everybody talking about the high cost of college? What things cost a lot of money? Fragile things, right? <laughs> when the bull goes into the china shop, those price tags are really high. And that's true of college. And therefore, college is a, it's like college is like a china shop. It's a receptacle, it's, or it's like a shelf, like it's a menagerie of little <laughs> glass people. And, and because it costs so much, these coddled little pampered people who are full of, like they've, they've, they've got different emulsions and like, facial creams that keep them... On the porcelain? What? Well, yes. You cannot imagine what, what creams do to a good porcelain. Um, <laughs> Let's go to Khan. <laughs> so, clearly, John and Julia are completely insensitive to the experiences and sufferings of the various people out there before them in a classroom. If they were the teachers lecturing to this classroom, they would see nothing but an undifferentiated sea of faces with no history, no diversity, no, no language of their own. They would all be rattling in their seats from fear of anything you might say. 
It is a hard, hard world that these poor children who get to go to Yale and Harvard and Princeton grow up in. We need to respect their fragility. We need to understand who they are. All right, let's vote. Pro. Con. All right, that's a clear win for Pro. Let's rotate. Thank you, next two in. Next question. Pro or con, it's going to be okay. <laughs> As Americans, we live satisfied in the knowledge that every day is better than the next day. Or every day is better than the, the next day is better than yesterday, anyway. Something, something's better. Oh, just hit the buzzer. <laughs> And um, that's a great satisfaction of knowing that's why I'm, I bred, I've had children to pass into the world. This happiness, this improvement, this sense that everything will be okay. I have a one word rebuttal. Death. <laughs> harsh, I've, harsh. Unlike, un, unlike the far left collectivist status John Dickerson, I believe that it's morning in America. <laughs> and... If yeah. you want the people to my left to, to bring you to, to ruin, then clap for them. <laughs> well, as Julia said, death. <laughs> it is morning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G in America. Um, but I refer you to my previous conversation uh, about ISIS. <laughs> goddess of the rainbow, John. She's the goddess of the rainbow. All right, let's have a vote for pro. And Khan. Cheers for that. Rotate, we're nearing the end. We're running out of questions. This might be the last round. You gotta win if you wanna win. That's just advice my mom told me. All right. Pro or con, Democrats should cheer for Donald Trump to win the GOP primary. I think they should cheer for him to win. Only after a complete revelation of the contradictions inherent in the system of free enterprise are totally revealed and it collapses to the ground in a heap of smoking ruin will the socialist paradise be instituted. Not only will a Donald Trump GOP win guarantee that whoever the Democrat is, mm, let's say Hillary Clinton, is going to waltz her way into the White House, it will confirm every bit of the Democratic worldview that Republicans are crazy, that Republicans are stupid, that without us, this country would be going to hell. Con? Unlike the far-right ideologues <laughs> to my right, as a Democrat, I'm a, I'm a serious-minded person, and I want a serious election that is about the issues, the issues that are important to me and my family. And we're not gonna get that serious debate with Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination. I mean, yeah. be serious. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, that good-thinking Democrats want Ben Carson to win the nomination <laughs> so we can discuss the pyramid. Donald, <laughs> Donald Trump serves a very important role, much like the backward-talking god of Hopi legend. He is a mirror to which we can gauge ourselves. Plus, he is the only candidate who actually has, of, among the Republicans, the best policy on taxing the uh, plutocrats on Wall Street, you know? His hedge fund taxation plan is much better than Jim Gilmore's. You, you, totally, you totally stole my backward-talking yeah. Hopi legend line. 
All right, let's have votes for pro. No, I'm voting for them. Votes for con. Oh, we won. That's a win for pro. I'm so sorry. The winners of our Slate podcast, Roundelay, Atai, Steve, Julia, and Pesca. Congratulations, everyone, back to the back line. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this brings us to the end of the evening. Am I on? The Superfest was produced by Faith Smith and Aaron Bergen. The podcast is produced by Ann Hepperman and Henry Malofsky. Our technical director is Jason Gambrell. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Panoply and our guests to Beat Jakes and Leslie Odom Jr. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Thank you so much. You've been a great crowd. Let's kick it out, guys. One smile and suddenly nobody else will do. Vive la France!